There is a famous story about the Battle of Waterloo in English history. All of England was waiting for news about the battle, and word finally came flashing back across the English Channel. Wellington defeated. Then thick fog settled in along the coast of England, and England despaired of all hope until the fog lifted and two more words were signaled. The full message read, Wellington defeated the enemy. What a difference it makes to see the whole picture or to receive the full message. Once, after preaching a message about God's judgment, I said to one of our church members that I felt like the message was a scorcher and I was sweating as I preached it. The person commented that it was because I had hell at my back. Friends, we must never preach hell without hope. The Bible always balances hell and hope, and we find that balance in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 7 focused on God's judgment for sin. But chapter 8 proclaims God's hope for our future. Now, honestly, I don't like preaching judgment, but I love preaching grace. So I'm very glad to be in Zechariah 8 now. Chapter 8 is the other side of God. Chapter 8 is the other half of the message. It is all about restoration and gladness. I like preaching chapter 8 much more than preaching chapter 7. The message is simple. God promises to turn our tears into cheers. The prophet has four points to his sermon in chapter 8. First, the promises of God are founded upon the character of God. Zechariah 8 verses 1 through 8. Five times in the first eight verses, the expression, thus says the Lord, is used. God's character is at stake in this chapter. The promises of God are founded upon the jealousy of God in verses 1 and 2. A literal translation of the Hebrew in verse 2 would read, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. With great burning I am jealous for her. God is a passionate God. He is a God of great emotion. Spirituality is not just a matter of the intellect, of the mind. God is a God of passion. His promises of hope well up from his passionate jealousy for us. Jealousy is the language of love. God's jealousy is an expression of God's love. God loves us so much that he wants our undivided love and loyalty in return. God feels like a jilted lover when other people and other things crowd him out of our lives. He passionately desires our loyal love. His jealous love is the motivation for both God's wrath when we sin and God's promises when we repent. The promises of God are also founded upon the choice of God in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, 
I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Notice that God says, I will return and I will dwell. God's blessings are at his initiative, not ours. God is sovereign and both his judgments and his blessings are initiated by him. The people of Israel are rebuilding the city, but God says that when he returns, then the city will have a new reputation. It is because of God's presence that Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and a holy mountain. Now, Israel is certainly not known for their truth and holiness today. It is the presence of God that makes a place or a person holy. It is the choice of God that makes us holy. The word saints in the New Testament means holy ones. We are holy ones not because of our merits, but because of God's choice. The city of Jerusalem will one day be a holy place, not by their merits, but by God's choice. The promises of God are founded on the delight of God in verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in, the, in its streets. I think that God has a wonderful sense of humor and paints a beautiful word picture here through Zechariah. The picture that we have in these two verses is of the very old and the very young living in the security of God's blessings. Here are the old men and women sitting in their rocking chairs, so to speak, saying, isn't it a lovely day out today? And next to them are the little children laughing and playing in the beauty of God's delight. The Hebrew word for play that is used here comes from the word to laugh. The particular construction used in this verse indicates repeated laughter. When my girls were little, I loved to hear them laugh while they played. The laughter of children is delightful because it is so carefree, so happy. Sadly, as we grow older, we lose that sense of happy laughter amid the cares and the responsibilities and the burdens of this world. God delights in the laughter of small children, and he delights in the serenity of the aged. There is coming a day, God says, when Israel will again dwell in safety and happiness. This is God's delight. To paraphrase one writer, God's reluctant work is judgment, but his delightful work is blessing. God reluctantly judges us in his anger, but he delights to delight us with his delights.
The promises of God are founded on the power of God in verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Nothing is too hard for God. The people certainly might have looked at these promises the way many Christians look at the promises of God today. Oh, that will never happen to me. My circumstances are too tough. My situation is impossible. But God says, just because it appears too tough for you does not mean that it is too tough for me. I delight to do the impossible for you. God has the power to perform what he promises. We must believe that truth to understand our hope as believers. The promises of God are founded on the love of God in verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. The east and west is a figure of speech called a merism, referring to the whole earth. God will regather the nation of Israel from the entire globe back to the land of Israel. He will reestablish his covenant of love with them. Now, this has not fully taken place, but we know that God has the power to perform what he promises. There is coming a day when Israel will be regathered to the land and restored to their relationship with God. Verse 8 is covenant language. The verse expresses the Old Testament concept of fellowship, of communion between God and his people. The prophet Hosea has a wonderful expression of this covenant relationship between God and his people when he talks about the fact that Israel will go through a not-my-people stage, but ultimately will be restored to a my-people relationship. Paul applies this biblical principle to the Gentiles in Romans 9, 25, and 26. The theological principle is that God delights in taking not-my-people people and making them into my-people people. That's what God does for us in his grace. My friends, God is a loving, restoring, transforming God. God says, You may be a rebellious, obstinate, sinful people, but I want you because I love you with a passionate love. You may not be pretty, you may not be pure, but God wants you. God loves the unlovable. I love God's love, don't you? The second point in the prophet's sermon 
is that the promises of God encourage obedience to God in verses 9 through 13. There's a wonderful contrast in these verses between the past and the future. Zechariah is talking about B.O. and A.O., before obedience and after obedience. Let's start with B.O., before obedience, Zechariah 8, 9, and 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for animal, and for him who went out or came in there was no peace because of his enemies. And I set all men one against another. In 536 B.C., a remnant of about 50,000 Jews returned to the land of Palestine to rebuild the temple. They were stopped from rebuilding the temple by persecution. Sixteen years later, in 520 B.C., the prophet Haggai comes on the scene to exhort the people who had become immersed in making a good life for themselves while the temple of God lay in ruins. And God was ruining their crops. God was making life miserable for them because of their disobedience. The people repented, and they went back to work rebuilding the temple. Zechariah then comes on the scene about midway through the process of rebuilding the temple, which took about four years to complete. And Zechariah exhorts them to be strong and finish the job. Notice that God said that he was the one who had made them miserable because of their disobedience. God can use our material circumstances to teach us spiritual lessons, my friends. Bio is what we experience when God is trying to turn us back to him. Ao is what we experience after obedience in verses 11 to 13. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed, the vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. It will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and O house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. I love God's buts. The first two words of verse 11 are, but now. What a great two words to hear from God. Then you were disobedient, and I had to judge you. But now you are obedient, and I delight to bless you. A spiritual principle is found in those two words. It is a principle of God's grace. The principle is this. 
Obedience precedes blessing. But now, God says, I am going to bless you with material blessings. Israel was once a curse word, but will become a blessing to the entire world. That all will be fulfilled, of course, in the Millennial Kingdom one day. My friends, do you understand the but-nows of God's grace? Have you wandered far from Him? He would be delighted to say to you today, but now. The key is repentant obedience. All you have to do is turn back to Him and experience His wonderful but now. Repentant obedience is the key to enjoying God's spiritual promises. The only way we can be obedient is by the grace of God in Christ who enables us to be obedient. The biggest problems we have in the church are not the passages in the Bible we do not understand. Our biggest problems are the passages we do understand but do not do. You say, but Dave, obedience is so boring. I want something exciting in my spiritual life. Well, my friends, some things are exciting in the Christian life, but many things are just a matter of simple hard work and faithfulness. Much of our Christian experience is basic, boring obedience to God. But let me tell you, that your boring obedience is the kind of faithfulness God honors with his blessing. We always want to live on the mountaintops, but obedience is lived in the valleys of life. We will never experience the blessings of God until we practice obedience to God. Why? Because third, the promises of God require agreement with God. Verses 14 to 17. There's an ancient Chinese parable which tells about an old man who lived with his son in a dilapidated house. One night, the old man's only horse wandered away and was lost. His neighbors came to express sympathy for his bad luck. He responded, How do you know that this is bad luck? A week later, the horse returned, bringing a whole herd of wild horses with it. The neighbors, neighbors helped him capture all the wild horses and then complimented him on his good luck. The old man responded, How do you know this is good luck? One day the man's son was riding one of the wild horses when he was thrown from the horse, resulting in a crippled leg. The neighbors arrived to sympathize with his bad luck. The old man responded, How do you know this is bad luck? Now, the story, the Chinese parable, could continue forever. The point is that we look, we look at specific events, circumstances, and situations in our lives. We are governed by our current circumstances. But God looks at his overall plan for the world, and that is a totally different perspective. Events which appear catastrophic to us 
are only one thread in the tapestry of life that God is weaving. The promises of God require agreement with his plan in verses 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. God's purposes are perfect. He purposes to judge in his time, and he purposes to bless in his time. Both judgment and blessing are initiated by God and carry out his divine plan. Woven into that plan are our own sins. Now, God does not cause us to sin but he weaves those sins into his beautiful tapestry of life so that the end result is perfect. What God requires of us is agreement with his plan. The great imagery which runs throughout scripture is the image of the potter and the clay. The potter shapes us according to his will. If we reject his molding and shaping, Then he remakes us. The clay must be pliable in his hands. What God wants from us is a soft heart, not a perfect heart, because God can take a soft heart and make it into a beautiful work of art. A hard heart must be thrown away as useless by the potter. So the promises of God require agreement with his plan and agreement with his ethics, verses 16 and 17. These are the things which you should do, God says. Speak the truth to one another, judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate declares the Lord. Ethics has to do with our standard of morality. How do we live our lives in a morally acceptable way? Zechariah gives us four short ethical principles for how to live our lives. Number one, speak the truth. Number two, judge with justice. Number three, Plot not evil. And number four, love not lies. Speak the truth, judge with justice, plot not evil, love not lies. Oh, how desperately we need this message today. Our political leaders sacrifice truth and justice on the altar of success. Even Christians strike Faustian bargains with unjust leaders to get what we want politically. Pragmatism rules, and winning is all that matters. We excuse lying as a minor sin and ignore injustice in our society as long as we can be successful and on the winning side. We reject God's standards for morality, forgetting that the basics of 
that the basis of ethics is the very character of God. Friends, God hates injustice. God hates lying. These are not minor sins. They violate God's character. True believers love what God loves and hate what God hates. If God hates lying, who are we to excuse lying is trivial? If God hates racial injustice, who are we to ignore it? If God hates revenge politics, who are we to support it? If God hates the use of money and power to exploit people, who are we to turn a blind eye to such exploitation of the poor and the vulnerable in our world? You see, we can become so jaded that we lose our hatred of sin, the things that God hates, we should hate. We cannot love what God loves without hating what God hates. We often want the promises of God without the requirements of God. Friends, we cannot have the promises of God without agreement with his plan and his ethics. Fourth, the promises of God produce hope in God, verses 18 to 23. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Love, truth, and peace. Finally, the prophet gets around to the point and answers the question about the fasts which had begun the whole sermon back in chapter 7 with the arrival of the delegation asking about fasting. Zechariah says, Oh, so you want to know about those fasts, those traditions which you practice in church so faithfully? Well, let me tell you about those silly little religious traditions you think are so important. I'm going to transform the fasts into feasts, verses 18 and 19. Your fasts will become feasts, he has just said here. Your mourning because of the pain you suffered will become celebrations of God's grace. Those long-faced religious rituals which you have been practicing so religiously are going to become spiritual parties. The parties will focus on the grace of God. Israel will celebrate God's grace in God's kingdom as they experience renewed spiritual desires, verses 20 to 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. God says, Guess what? 
the people of all the nations of this world are going to come to Jerusalem and to worship the Lord. <laughs> Talk about revival. That's global revival. Israel will become the medium for God's blessing upon the entire world. And Jesus Christ will be the center of global worship. The world will be one in Christ. Well, this, of course, has not happened yet, but it will take place in the Millennial Kingdom when all the nations of the world come to Jerusalem to worship Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All of this is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God said, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is an old saying, How odd of God to choose the Jews. How odd of God to choose the Jews. Yet choose the Jews God did. The nation today has yet to turn to their Messiah, Jesus Christ. One day, they will turn to Christ and see the fulfillment of those promises as the nations of the world find their spiritual desires filled in Jesus Christ. And they will give powerful testimonies in verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days... Ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. God has a wonderful sense of humor. Here ten men will grab hold of the garment of one Jew to implore him for God's favor. What a switch from the way the world has treated the Jews down through the centuries. Once a curse word... Zechariah tells us in verse 13, the Jews will become a blessing, not a curse to the nations. The verb to take hold of is a very intense verb used only two other times in the entire Old Testament. Once it is used of Moses grabbing the tail of the serpent in Exodus 4.14. And once this verb is used of David grabbing the lion by the beard in 1 Samuel 17.35. In other words, these people could not afford to let go. They intensely grabbed hold of a Jew. They will cling to the Jews for dear life. Why? Because they will realize that God has blessed his people whom he chose so long ago as odd as that seems. The promises of God will be fulfilled to the glory of God and the benefit of his people. The people of God will be powerful testimonies to this world of the grace of God. Lydia Buxbason wrote a beautiful account of the lives of her Jewish Christian parents in the book, They Looked for a City. In that book, Lydia tells about an experience she had in Germany in 1938. She had gone to Krefeld, Germany, on a business trip during the beginning of a carnival devoted to Hitler. Lydia describes how she locked her room 
and watched through the curtains of her window as the quote-unquote fun started in the streets. Thousands of people carrying torches and life-size dummies of famous Jewish people like Albert Einstein walked the streets. The crowd shouted obscenities about Jews and burned the effigies. They sang terrible anti-Semitic songs with words like this, When Jewish blood from the knife spurts, things will go much better for us. The people looted. They burned Jewish homes and tortured Jewish leaders, all in the name of Hitler's master race. Yet, just ten years later, in 1948, the same carnival in the same town was devoted to the dummies of Adolf Hitler and the other enemies of Judaism. God had spoken in history, Don't mess with my people, for I am in control, and he who curses my people, him I will curse. The invincible Third Reich came crashing down before the kingdom of Almighty God. And that's why Lydia writes, they looked for a city. You see, they kept their eyes on their future hope in the Messiah, and that hope energized them. The hope of the kingdom moved, motivated, and stimulated them to live through terrible experiences that no human should have to suffer from other humans. Yet they believed that one day Israel would know the joy of her vindication when all the world worships at the feet of the Messiah in the temple of Jerusalem. How about us today? God promises to turn our tears into cheers. We, too, know the joy of God's promises. And no matter what you are going through right now, my friends, you can count on a God who always keeps his word. He is, after all, the same God. He has not changed. And he delights to turn our tears into cheers just as much as he delights in Israel's coming 1,000-year celebration. It is only in Christ that we have this hope for the future, no matter what the present might be, no matter what our circumstances look like right now. Keep your eyes on Christ, because our hope is in a person who can help us live today in the light of tomorrow.